Hello there, and welcome to KDL's Stump the Librarian podcast, where your friendly neighborhood librarians put their research skills to the test to answer questions from you, the listener, or your dog, your great, 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 great uncle, your cousin thrice removed, or your neighbor. Ben and Jerry. Yes, two uncles. Um, I'm Courtney. I'm one of the librarians that you will be attempting to stump. I'm from our Gaines and Kentwood branches. I'm joined by the lovely Emily from Tyrone and Jill from Wyoming. Jill's our producer or the librarian behind the computer. Um, Emily, how's it going? What have you been into recently? Any new hobbies you've picked up? Actually, what are you knitting? Right oh, now? That's a, I was going to say, I have no new hobbies because I'm currently knitting and crocheting everything. Ever. Um, I am making a, uh, I'm helping to make, I will say, a sweater for you, Courtney. Yes, um, my Harry Styles cardigan. Yes. I'm so excited. Which is almost time to put it all together. I am also making some horse blankets for my niece's fake horses. <laughs> when you that told me Shirley. that the first time, I thought they were real horses. No, no. No, no. But, okay, they good, they are large, though. They can sit on them. So the, I'm oh, working on that stuff okay. right now. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put a picture of me in my fabulous sweater yeah. when it's done in the notes. Um, right. Jill's also very crafty. Are you working on any crafts, any puzzles recently? No, no, no. I haven't really been working on anything. I, mm-hmm. I haven't. I've been... Uh, You've been momming too hard. Yeah. Yeah, I really have. That's fair. Yeah. I haven't been working on too many new things. I'm needing to paint my house. This is super boring. Sorry if you're listening, but I have a lot of like house projects to work on, which are super boring, (laughs) but exciting to make my house look more like my house, which we learned in the last podcast that I could move. So once I get this house perfect, if I, for some reason, don't want to live in West Michigan anymore. Take the whole thing with you. I can pay a lot of money, buy some land somewhere else, and move my whole house. Even on a boat. Yeah. Even on a boat. Even on a boat. I can go across across the pond. And anyways, all right. Well, we've got some really, really hard questions. So this is actually the last episode for this season of the podcast. We will be back in January with... um, some new episodes so please submit your questions so that we can answer them in our new season but we are ending with some almost stumpers i would say would you would you two agree yes this is three very difficult <laughs> yeah, questions very difficult questions so jill what's our first question Ooh, all right our first question is from theodore age six from comstock park and theodore's question is how do engineers build robots and cars how do robots work? Two questions. That's cheating. Ooh, two questions. Man, Theodore's got some good questions. He also asked how houses move, which we answered in our last episode. We did, yes. And if you'd like to know, please listen. Um, yeah. It turns out it happens all the time. Yeah, it does. So this is a huge question, and props to Jill for doing the behind-the-computer work on this question. Um, so I didn't have to research two of them, two really hard questions. But for the purpose of this podcast, because this question is so huge in, um, you know, we can answer a lot of things about robots. Um, we're going to narrow it down, but also provide some resources for Theodore and other interested people who would like to follow up with more robot information. So, but first, Emily, what comes to mind when you think about robots? 
kind of sci-fi movies, I think, is yeah. what comes to mind first. I would say that. Also, Star Wars. Star Wars, for sure. And their droids. Are droids and robots the same thing, just, like, different phrasing? Yeah, I don't really think of, like, super advanced robots either. Yeah. I also don't think of practical robots. So, right. like, my dad worked for a manufacturing company when I was really young, so in like the 90s, and they use robots to do a lot of their work. And so I never think of the like more practical uses of robots. I always think of the more like personal uses. So like having C-3PO to where he can translate any language for me and just be my sidekick and there for comedic relief would be fabulous, <laughs> but like not practical. Can you imagine if it was just a comedic relief robot? Robot. That's like their sole purpose. That'd be pretty good. <laughs> That'd be very entertaining. But anyways, there are many different concepts of robots, so we wanted to define what a robot is first. To put it simply, a robot is a machine that is designed to accomplish a task. So we know with C-3PO, um, one of their main things is to translate languages. They know, like, I forget how many languages he knows, but it's like hundreds of languages. Um, so that sounds like it could be anything. A microwave, a calculator, they all do specific tasks. But there's one more part to that definition. Robots are machines that use their programming to make a decision to accomplish their task. So like with a microwave, you're making the decisions. There's no nothing programmed in your microwave. Oh, gosh, that would be really nice if it knew exactly how long to heat up my pizza without, like, burning it. Yeah. That would be great, actually. But unfortunately, microwaves are not there yet. Um So, yeah, robots have many, many kinds of looks, but there are four basic elements that make up each robot, and we're going to cover those really quickly. So, first, robots occupy physical space. That means they have some type of body. Again, these look different, and we'll talk about examples later. Second, they have some type of sensor. It might be a sound sensor or visual sensor or even a touch sensor. Third, they have some type of control system for decision-making or a computer. And lastly, robots have some type of mechanical part so they can do the job that they are designed to do. Very important. They should definitely be able to do what they are designed to do. (laughs) Because can you imagine if like R2-D2 couldn't fly the plane or the not plane, the space air, whatever it is. There's a specific name and it's like escaped me because my brain is just filled with all this knowledge about the last question that we're going to talk about. So... Yeah, he wouldn't be as much of use, I guess. I mean, like, Luke could still fly it, but R2 definitely had other things to do. Yeah, Yeah, like fighting stormtroopers that were flying after him. Lots of Star Wars reference. We can't, I can't talk about robots without talking about Star Wars. Also, Wally, his one job, literal one job, is to just make those little squares or cubes. Of garbage. He did a great job. He did a fabulous mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Ugh, what a good movie. Anyways, in order to talk about how engineers build the robots, I'd like to briefly discuss the history of robots. So, Emily, how long do you think robots have been around? We know at least the 90s. Yeah, probably longer than I'd give them credit for. Um, I, I, I think so. You yeah. can't see my screen. No, I can't. I'm not looking. I can, yeah, I can see your screen, but I won't look at it. I want to say, yeah. to me, like, robots seem, like, very 50s. But I think it's, it's like, further than that. It sure is. Um, so the word robot has been around since a play that was written in 1920 about artificial humanoid characters. 
but machines to do work like robots have been around since ancient times. One example of this is a clock tower built in China around 1088 CE that had mechanical mannequins that chimed the hour. So again, they had a specific task and they had to make decisions. In the 1770s, we talked about how to say this word and I can't remember how to say it. Again, my brain is just filled with information about the universe. But automation... Automatons. Automatons were all the rage. Have you heard of those, Emily? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Before today. Before today, yeah. Okay. I was like, we yep. did talk about this before the podcast. Um, they were humanoid robots that did something like dance, using mechanical gears, and the first modern-day working robot was used at a GM plant, so at a car plant, in 1960, and it lifted hot pieces of metal and stacked them. So like Wally, kind of. I mean, kind of. Kind of, yeah. They're both looking very skeptical at me. Anyways, the people who design and build robots are robot engineers, and here's how they make the robots. First, they have to consider what the purpose for the robot is. Um, They collect all kinds of data, like the robot's working environment, costs, and how much it has to interact with humans. After that, they start the design work. Most of the design for robots is done using computer software, Um. Design software for robots usually will also have simulations right in the software, so the engineer can kind of see how the robot is going to perform under different conditions before even building the robot, which is good and very (laughs) cost-efficient. After the design is finished on the software, the engineer builds a prototype. That prototype goes through a bunch of tests to make sure it can handle different situations. Um, This is often the most difficult phase of building a robot because so many difficulties can come up but after all the issues are worked out, a robot can be used for a new task. Woot, woot. But the last part we're going to talk about today, um, and then there are sources for more information if you need to know more, which I'm sure some of you will, I'm going to give you two examples of specific robots because the answer to how robots work is going to be different for each robot, and they really vary amongst them. Um, there is even a robot on our friendly neighborhood red planet, Mars. Um, its sensors allow it to drive around the surface of Mars. It has large rugged wheels to move around, and its job is to collect data and send it back to Earth. Um, you can find some cool books about that robot on our website. Um, I believe Jill is talking about the Mars rover. Am I correct? Okay. She's nodding at me, for those of you who can't hear her nod. Um One more use for robots um, is that they can be used for surgery. Robots' arms can make tiny incisions and perform complicated tasks. So the surgeons will use a camera and controls to guide the robot in surgery. And robotic surgeries can result in less infection and a speedier recovery. I think that blows my mind the most, that they can be used in surgery. Yeah. They they must be, like, very fluid in their motions, which in my head, like, I don't often think that way um, right. about robots, which, you know, they're always improving the technology, yeah. but it's still, that, that blows my mind. It does. Um, if you want to know more information about robots, which we know you do, Jill has two YouTube videos that she highly recommends you watch, which is where most of this information came from. And the first one is How Engineering Robots Works, Engineering Crash Course, Episode 33, and A Brief History of Robotics from SciShow. Um, There are also many great books about engineering robots at kdl.org. 
And so, yeah, and we'll have those two videos linked in the show notes so you don't have to go and find them. You can just click the link below. And, yeah. Well, I'm excited to watch those videos. Yeah, Yeah. shout out to Crash Course and SciShow for um, not sponsoring this podcast, (laughs) but providing a lot of the information that we're going to share because I also use them for my episode or my question. So thanks to that team. But, yeah, Jill, do you have a fact for us? Yes, I do have a fact. And my fact today, so all of our questions today are very science-heavy. So I went with the natural world for my fact, just to switch it up a little. And this is a new book. It's called How Long Does a Redwood Tree Live? Some of you may know that I was just in the redwood forest this this Ah. past fall. And so this has a special place in my heart. Very cool trees. Very big. Massive. 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 So here is my fact. Uh, Okay, this fact is about redwood roots. So redwoods have very shallow roots for the size of how tall they are. They're, you know, 300 feet tall or taller, Mm -hmm. but they do not go deep in the ground. Instead, they spread wide in all directions and the roots interconnect with the roots of other nearby trees. They spread out 60 to 80 feet and they only go 10 to 13 feet into the ground wow Wow, that is not deep at all no especially not for a 300 foot tree no not at all that does i guess give them a nice like base rather than going deep i can see where that would give them some like more stability but yeah maybe that's what it has to do with because it's so tall uh one thing about science and nature is usually when and this has been very prevalent in our podcasting is we answer questions but we end up having more questions so again feel free to submit your questions at kdl.org forward slash stump or you can email us directly at stump the librarian at kdl.org and i'm glad to hear you say that courtney because that is a, a perfect segue into what i'm about to talk about which is I'll let Jill introduce, but it's all about asking questions. Science is. is all about asking questions. Oh, yeah. it is. And this next question is so exciting. It's from Natalia, age nine, at our Gaines branch. And Natalia asks, how does science work? That is a great question. How does science work? Um, very broad question. It is. Also, same with the robots. It is also like a very scientist question. Like that's yeah. a question like a scientist would ask to find out more about something. Um, and scientists and science are always working toward gaining more information and knowledge about the world around us. So if you're asking this question at 10, I feel like you for sure have a science mind. Yeah, you um, definitely focus on those STEM Yeah, absolutely. You're asking uh, great questions. I actually think that often kids are the best scientists because they're not afraid to ask those questions and they are constantly testing out their own hypothesis, which we will talk about here in a minute. Um, But yeah, how how does science work? So science is a way for us to gain knowledge about how and why things happen in the world around us. We do this by using our senses to observe our world and then we use experiments to investigate how it works. So the way of gaining knowledge altogether is called the scientific method. It's a series of steps mm-hmm. in order to gain information about all of those questions that we have. Yes. Um, and luckily we have scientists that do this for us. And yes. we just 
we kind of give you what they've done after they've gone through the scientific method yes. when you ask these science questions. Yes, because there are definitely some steps involved. Yes. Um, you have to, and I'm going to give us the basic step steps here because often bigger questions, you need more steps. Mm-hmm. Um, you also repeat steps. You also too. repeat steps, yeah. Well, yeah, which we'll talk about as well. So the basic steps I'm going to give you are, there's five of them. There's observe, hypothesize, experiment, analyze, and report. Um, Emily, how do you remember those? Well, so there's a couple ways (laughs) I used to remember them as a child. I got rid of one because I felt concerned. You're right. There were some long words in it. So I'm going to talk about the other one that we would use. Um, When I was in elementary school, we learned about the scientific method, and we used a pneumatic device to remember it. And one of them was O-ear. Okay, that makes sense. That one makes sense. Compared to the one I saw on your document earlier today where I was like, I think I would remember the actual words more more than the words you you have listed. It makes sense. Um, A lot of times pneumatic devices, you can make up a sentence with like the first letter of each word and have it say like something silly. Um, There's one for the solar, for the planets in the solar system that I can't remember what it is. But yeah, sometimes but I know they, the planets in the solar system better than I know the pneumatic. We'll device. see it, and and where I'm as um, my brain doesn't like to remember those five words. So ha- like saying something to myself like "oh ear," and then I'm like, okay, well I know I have "o" and I know I have "h," and I can remember what the words are. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any pneumatic devices you do remember from elementary school? Because that one's stuck with me now for maybe like 26 years. No. <clears throat> sorry, no, sorry okay. to all of my elementary <clears throat> teachers for all that hard work you went to. To have me remember, I do remember it's not a pneumatic device, but like how to spell onomatopoeia, and it's like oh no, ma to yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's or good together one. is to get her. Oh yeah, yeah. Or Wednesday. Oh yeah, or Wednesday. It's <laughs> a weird one to spell. Yeah, there's a few I remember. Most of them don't make any sense. Oh, ear is probably like the best one. But anyway, let's talk about what those five words actually mean. Lay it on me. So observe or ask a question. Um, You want to know what's the question? What do you want to know? What are you noticing about the world around you? What are you noticing in relation to your question? And hypothesize. You then will propose an answer um, or a possible answer to that question. You'll use an if-then sentence. So, for example, if you eat a tub of ice cream, then your stomach will hurt. Ah, uh, false. I mean, that's, that's... <laughs> so that would be my hypothesis. But then you're going to want to experiment. And I guess I don't suggest that anybody oh, I... listening eat a whole tub of ice cream. Um, that's, that's You do not... you, though. I guess, I guess. Can't so, stop you. I apologize to all the parents out there. Um, so you experiment. And then once you've done your experiment, you'll analyze. And you'll use the knowledge that you gain from the experiment and look at the results. And then you'll report it. So you'll tell everybody what you found out. How um, great it felt after you ate all that ice cream. That's right. How fantastic you felt afterwards. Fantastic. Mm. Run a mile. After I feel like that. we're going to get some emails about <laughs> upset parents. stomachs. Yeah. We take no responsibility for <laughs> your upset stomachs. At any of these steps, you can also go back and retry them. Um, so I'm going to use a very simple example. It's something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, we are always like regularly in our life using the scientific method, and I'm going to give you an example of how. So, say it's the weekend and you've lost your phone. I lose my phone all the time. This makes this is I can t- 
testify to that because yes. I will message Emily and not hear from her for hours. And I'm like, I just heard from you. Yeah, we were just texting ago. and then I'll put it somewhere and it's gone. Um, so you may observe your phone is missing. <clears throat> Where could it be? Where do you remember last using it? You remember you using it maybe while you're doing schoolwork at the dinner table. So then you hypothesize, if I last used my phone at the dinner table, then it must be sitting at the dinner table. So then you run an experiment. You go check the dinner table. And because sometimes in experiments, things don't always go smoothly, just as with life, you realize your phone is not at the table. At this point, you're going to want to go back to observe to think more about what could have happened in the last time you used your phone. So your second observation, you think, you know, you know your, la- your family likes to keep the dinner table clear, so dishes will get sent to the sink, and anything else maybe will get moved onto a shelf or something to be taken care of later. I'm just picturing them putting your phone in the sink now. I'm like, well, ah! not, Fortunately, it's not a dish, so. True. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully not. But mom's, like, <clears throat> on a mission and just grabbing That's everything. Right. Anyway, sorry. Putting it somewhere else? Okay. So then you're going to hypothesize. Well, if you left the table messy when you were doing homework, then someone would have moved your mess onto the shelf where you store things to take care of later. Mm -hmm. So then you run an experiment. You go and you check the shelf and you find your phone. There it is. And then you analyze, since you left your phone on the counter and your family likes to keep the the dinner table clear Mm -hmm. for other activities, it must be that somebody then moved your phone to clear it up later. And then you report by answering all the texts that you missed and apologizing for not getting back to those texts sooner because you had lost your phone. Yes. Um, So it is important to note that hypotheses can become theories. So somebody can do this experiment and run it a number of times and find out that, like, their hypothesis is being confirmed, and that would make Mm -hmm. it then a theory. However, there is really no scientific fact. So we are always gaining knowledge about the world around us. Mm -hmm. So science rarely has like a fact because we'll generally learn something more and then we'll want to add that um, Mm -hmm. to our knowledge. Right. So, which is a great segue into the next question because (laughs) it's a doozy. But before we get into that, thanks Emily for sharing about the scientific method. Jill, have you been reading anything good recently? I have. I have. I just started this book um, just today actually. And it's called, the Unsung Hero of Birdsong USA. Oh, hey, I've read like a third of that book. Oh, it's really sweet so far. I'm not, I'm not that far into it, but... Um, it's a pretty short book, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I read fairly quickly, so I'll probably get through it fairly quickly would be my guess, but it's historical fiction, and it is set um, right after World War II in 1946. And it opens up with um, the main character turning 12 and getting a bike for his 12th birthday, which I also got a bike for my 12th birthday. It's a good gift. It really is. Yeah. And he um, asks his parents if he can ride his bike across town. And he's so excited. He runs a light and he almost gets hit by a lady with a lead foot. Oh, no. But at the last moment a man pushes him out of the way. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting is that, um, you know, this is set in 1946 and it is set in um, South Carolina where we know there is there was, um, you know, a lot of race issues there, Jim Crow laws, things that, you know, we obviously want to learn about, do not like. Um, and this man who pushed him out of the way is a black man. 
And so this book is going to be about, and again, I'm not very far, so I haven't gotten there yet. It's going to be about this young boy's relationship with this man and um, overcoming prejudice of, you know, his parents and everything that's been taught to him. Um, and I'm just really excited to see where it goes. He has a cousin who I, I love. I just met her really quickly. And she uses all these modern slang terms, which is so funny to be reading slang terms from 1946 and having them be modern. And I have not heard them. So they're new to me. Um, also new to the main character. Um, and she has like pretty forward thinking ideas about Jim Crow laws. Um, and so she's like kind of just challenging his thinking a little bit, which it's, it's really great so far. It is for, um, you know, middle grade, um, you know, the main character is 12. So that's a good for your fourth, fifth graders. And mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying it so far. Do you think you're going to cry? Um, you know, I picked this one on purpose because it looked like it had a little bit more humor, even though it's tackling tough issues because mm-hmm. I've just read so many heavy ones lately. Um, Probably. I mean, let's just be realistic <laughs> here, but hopefully not a lot. I don't know. That one, just your description gave me like goosebumps. Like I think like in a, it could be very um, emotional kind of way. So I'll have to yeah. put that on my reading list. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Again, it's a pretty quick, it's a pretty short book. Um, Kentwood Public Schools did it for their books for us um, three years ago. I think the time of COVID has all of my timing messed around but jill oh lay boy. on us give us a probably one of the hardest questions we've had to date and honestly we only have ourselves to blame because we answered a question we answered some questions in a previous podcast one of our first couple of podcasts i think it was our second one but don't quote me on that we talked about space and then this question came in so i'm guessing this is from an actual listener which is great we'd love to hear your questions but it's very hard. So, Jill. Okay, here we go. Maya, age 11, from Alto. And Maya, email us if, if this is your question and uh, if you want more information. And we'll, we'll try to send you some other sources. But the question is, oof, are we ready for this? Oh, I, I'm as ready as I'll <laughs> ever be. Ever, okay. Yeah. <laughs> At what rate is the universe expanding? Okay. So, yeah, uh, a heavy question. Um, for those of you that don't know, the universe is infinite. But it's also constantly expanding. And at what rate it's expanding? Well, it's complicated, and I'm going to simplify some processes in my explanation. And it's a pretty um, – the number itself isn't big, but, like, the rate is pretty um, quick. So I'm going to attempt to explain it, so please bear with me as I try because I am a librarian, which means I have access to a lot of information, and I can find you information – but it doesn't always mean I understand the information. I don't have a degree in astrophysics and all that fun stuff. But we all know that there are lots and lots of galaxies in the universe, right? So if you think about the universe as Earth, there's lots and lots of, there's some continents. So there's lots of galaxies. Those would be like the continents. And then the solar systems or planets would be like the countries in that continent. Is that making sense? It is, Kind of simplifying it. Um, So the Earth is in our solar system, which orbits around a star. That's the sun. And our solar system happens to live in the Milky Way galaxy. Um, Our solar system is about halfway from the center of the Milky Way. 
um, which is actually shaped like a huge whirlpool, which is kind of cool. You can Google pictures of the Milky Way um, for a better understanding of what I mean by whirlpool. And definitely do because it's really pretty. Yeah, also. the mi- pictures of the uh, Milky Way is are beautiful. Um, and the Milky Way as a whole galaxy rotates once every 200 million years. So um, not very... Not in our lifetime. Not in our lifetime. <laughs> um, but in someone's lifetime, it will have rotated. So when astronomers and physicists say that the universe is expanding, they don't mean that everything in it is getting bigger. Um, Obviously, Earth is a pretty solid planet, and it hasn't really increased dramatically in size. At least no one said that it had, so I'm going to assume it hasn't. Um, What is actually happening is the void or the empty space between galaxies is getting bigger. So the galaxies are moving further and further away from each other, which is how the the universe is expanding. Um, This was discovered because astronomers noticed this phenomenon called redshift. Um, So redshift is similar to the Doppler effect, which you'll notice when an ambulance is coming or a fire truck. You'll notice that the sound um, is faint when they're far away, and as they get closer and closer, it gets louder and louder, and then it gets um, softer as they move away from you. So the light um, waves, as as the light source moves further and further away from you, they kind of stretch. So those peaks are lowered. Um, And the light wave itself gets closer to the light wave for the color red, which is why they call it the red shift. Um, And because of this effect, astronomers noticed by observing stars in other galaxies that they were, in fact, moving away from us. Edwin Hubble, who the Hubble telescope and the Hubble constant, which is important in calculating the rate at which the universe expands, um, were named for, noticed in these red shifts that the amount of red shift shift is proportional to that the amount of distance that that galaxy is from us on Earth. So lots of things are happening. Um, the universe is a very cool place, but there is a lot that we don't know about it yet. So like Emily said, these are all theories. Um, none of this is like 100% fact, but there are a lot of theories that they've done a lot of um, hypotheses and a lot of tests and they've analyzed things to where they can say that they're pretty certain this is how it is. Um, but there is always room for error. Um, but the rate at which the universe is expanding is one where cosmo- cosmologists and astrophysicists are pretty certain of. Um, there are a few ways that scientists use to determine the rate at which the universe is expanding. And some of these methods involve the observation of celestial bodies like stars, and other involve a deeper dive into the laws of physics to estimate the rate at which the universe will continue to expand based on its behavior billions of years ago. So, Emily, how old do you think the universe is? So old. Well, it's like billions and billions of yeah. years old. And so the theory is that when the universe started, because these galaxies are, we can clearly tell that they're moving away, that they were much closer um, so if so, you've ever heard of the Big Bang Theory, that's kind of what this is based on, that all of these um, celestial bodies were all kind of in the center, and then the Big Bang happened, and they just started moving, and they've just continued to move. But the rate at which they've moved, we're able to kind of calculate based on certain things. So I guess real quick, getting back to your um the earth example mm-hmm. i wonder if it's similar i guess there wasn't a big bang though but i was going to say similar to like pangea, pangea yeah. where all of the yeah. continents were very close together and then they've moved we've further moved away yeah yeah so not the same method because obviously you know there's not 
empty space between um, like the continents there's water but yeah the analogy is still works there um so the first method involves calculating the distances to certain stars that are known as Cepheid variables and I hope I'm saying that right I listened to Hank Green say it a billion times and it's still like the way it's spelled and the way he said it just didn't entirely click in my brain um but good segue to shout out to SciShow Space and Crash Course Physics um, for helping me figure out how to explain um, this very complicated science in a much more digestible manner. Um, so I'm going to just briefly cover what they talked about. If you'd like to learn more, you can look at our sources in our show notes. Um, they'll link you to those two episodes that I watched, but Crash Course, which is put in junction with PBS, um, has a whole thing on astrophysics. Or astronomy, I think, actually. It's astronomy, yeah. Um, that you can watch and you can learn way more than I did about the universe and all these things like dark matter and black holes and all sorts of things. But anyways, back to the question or the answer to the question. Um, so a Cepheid is a star that's brightness changes in a very predictable way over time. And Henrietta Leavitt is actually the astronomer who discovered these types of stars. And the time length is directly proportional to how bright the star appears. So how much time has passed determines how bright this, they can figure out how much time has passed based on how bright the star is. Um, with this information, scientists can do some fancy calculations that we're not going to go into um, to figure out how bright the star is up close and use how bright it appears from Earth to determine how far away it is. Using this information and other information, astrophysicists can determine how fast the universe is expanding or how fast the galaxies are moving away from each other. Another way scientists used to ensure accuracy was to combine that data with information from different projects like that Ar Araucaria project. Probably said that wrong. Um, in this, they observed how stars changed as they moved around each other. Um, this helped them determine to figure out how massive these stars are and how large they are. Um, and then they could combine that with other information to determine how far away they are from each other. I also read about a new technique in Science Daily. This technique uses the surface brightness fluctuations to determine the rate at which the universe is expanding. So they have these old elliptical-shaped galaxies. So remember, the Milky Way is shaped like a whirlpool. Um, there are some older galaxies that are shaped like an elliptical. So that's kind of like um, the shape of the orbit that we take around the sun is an is ellipse, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, these galaxies have a consistent number of stars in them. So scientists were able to use images of these stars over time to see how they differ in brightness, which makes little sense to me. <laughs> but you can, again, read further um, in depth by visiting the links in our show notes. Um, so that's another method. So they just compared the brightness to see how far away they had moved over time. So how that brightness had changed determined how far away. Because we all know that the further away you are from something, the dimmer the light is. So if you're driving, you know, the street light, you know, that's half a mile away or whatever. It looks very dim until you're right underneath it. Or same with someone's headlights. You know, like the closer they get to you, <laughs> the worse it is for your eyes and you're like, gosh, please pass me because I don't want to stare at your lights anymore. Um, the last method we're going to talk about is using cosmic microwave background, 
which is the oldest light in the universe that we'll be able to see with our eyes. Um, Using this light, scientists can study how the universe behaved those billions of years ago by studying the temperature changes to see just how fast it expanded and then compare that to what the rate should be today. So basing this on what happened in the past, they think they can predict what happened in the future. But unfortunately, or fortunately, um, the number that was discovered using the cosmic microwave background um, versus the numbers that were used using those Cepheid variables is significantly different, which means that how the universe expanded in the past is different from how it is expanding currently, at least based on the different theories we have. And so this could be for a number of reasons. Um, people think, you know, there could have been something to do with dark matter, dark energy, which we don't know a lot about yet. That could have changed, you know, I mean, it's been billions of years. So something could have happened. Um, so the rate determined by the, this article from Silence Daily out of the University of California, Berkeley, in March of this year, they said that the universe is expanding at a rate of 73.3 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So that number makes no sense <gasps> to me. So... Luckily, Hank, in his video, breaks down what that means. So it means that an object, one parsec, or 3.3 million light years away, is moving away from us at a rate of 73.3 kilometers per second. With the other method, the one that uses cosmic microwave background, it's only predicted that it should be moving at a rate of 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsec. There's quite a big difference, and scientists are trying to figure out currently why that is. So, again, this is a great example of how answering one question leads to more questions. So many more so questions. They, and they're pretty certain that that 73.3 kilometers per second per megaparsec, which is such a mouthful to say, um, is pretty accurate. I think it was like a 1 in like 300,000 or something like that chance that they were wrong. So they're pretty certain that they're right, but they're also certain that this met, this number is right for the past. So they're trying to figure out What's what happened. What's changing, happens, yeah, over What over happened time. to make us start moving away, from, our galaxies moving away from each other at a almost 10 kilometer, or not almost 10, but like a six kilometer difference. Wow. Well, six kilometer per second per parsec. Per second per parsec. Uh, That's such my, a mouthful. My, yes, my brain is full. My brain is so full. I... I I have so much information about space. And honestly, I might go back and watch those astronomy videos on Crash Course just so I can be prepared for when the, like, tidal wave of space questions come <laughs> after this episode because... There's just so much so many to questions. wonder about in, in space, everywhere, but in space there's so yeah. much to know. But again, that was a very abbreviated explanation for how you figure out how the universe is expanding. And also it's really hard to wrap myself around like if it's infinite but it's also expanding. But it's also expanding. Yes. So like it's yeah. very confusing. Not to speak for everybody, but I feel like this episode today, this space question is probably what has been like most interesting and intense for all of us to kind yeah, of like get our minds around. I would say that scientists currently are stumped. Yeah. They are stumped. Um, with why there is this discrepancy in these two numbers. Um, 
So way to go, Maya, for not only stumping us, but, but stumping science. Science in general. Just science in general. Um, but they are working on figuring that out. And the nice thing is, um, because the universe is so expansive, I don't think we'll ever run out of questions or no. things to learn about the universe. So would you both say that the the universe question was by far, yeah. By yes, far I've the honestly left had. like a Very little hard. like it's also interesting, and it's a lot. You're right. Yeah. Even even as well as you did explaining it, it, there's a lot of information. I hope I did a good job. You did. Hurts my you head. Did. Yeah. yeah. My brain hurts. I need a nap now. Um, but, yeah, that's it for our first season of Stump the Librarian. We appreciate all of you that have been listening. Again, please submit your questions. Yeah, thank you so much for, for listening. As Courtney said, as always, you can check out the episodes we've done um, and submit your own questions at kdl.org forward slash stump or email us at stumpthelibrarian at kdl.org. We look forward to answering those questions in our in our second season. Um, and as always, a special thanks to J.D. Delinsky for our intro music, the KDL Amy Van Andel Library and Community Center for the podcast room, and the KDL Marketing Department. Yeah, thanks for podcasting with me, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good it's been season. So fun. Yeah, it's a good season. We will hopefully see you. Well, you'll hear us in a month. So happy New Year, and Woo. we'll see you in 2022. Bye. Bye.